Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. In this Short Fuse podcast, I'm in conversation with Mark Goldsmith. Mark is a retired cosmetic executive and held leading positions for over 35 years at Revlon, Yves Saint Laurent, Shishido, among many other companies, until he retired. He began volunteering on Rikers Island through the Principal for a Day program and has published a book entitled From Madison Avenue to Rikers Island that not only shares his experience and involvement on Rikers Island, and he was there every week for 15 years, but outlines how to become a social entrepreneur and establish organizations that can make a difference. Also joining us today is John Gonzalez, who met Mark when he was incarcerated on Rikers Island and is today a successful businessman. Before we begin our conversation, though, I went back into the archives and retrieved my introduction to one of the close conversations I hosted at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, entitled Incarceration from the Inside Looking Out and the Outside Looking In. The program was held on April 2nd, 2019. It seemed an appropriate introduction to our conversation today. Diane Wachowski is a beat poet from the 60s, and I have a book of her poetry entitled Inside the Blood Factory that was published in 1962. And the poems in that book have always remained with me over these many years. And as I was preparing for this conversation, there's one that I would just like to read to you the first verse. It's called Rescue Poem. When he diagnosed my case... It left me with little hope. You have an invisible telephone booth around you, he said. It is the glass hard cardamom whispers cannot penetrate. Glass of cutout tongues and spider tracks, of the turn of a bolt, one thread, and of the distant one hammer blow drives a nail, the space of a snake's forehead, and the diamond ladder of a window washer, a shadow foot between the real foot and the ground. I think all of us at one time or another have had an invisible telephone booth around us. We've been in prison, confined, shut in, incarcerated. And I don't think there's any one of us who's not broken a law or pushed the boundaries of a rule or hasn't gone into a rage perhaps hurt someone with a, a, or bullied them with words. But not all of us been inside an invisible telephone booth, but we haven't been confined in a six by seven foot cell. And we haven't been punished for infracting a rule by being imprisoned. So... In the United States, I think you know that we are the country with the most incarcerated people. We lead the world. How did we get here? We got here because of politics. 
We got here because of the war and drugs. We got here through racism and we got here through fear. And Michelle Alexander has outlined all of this brilliantly in her book, The New Jim Crow. Mark, before we talk about your book, can you describe your career in the cosmetics industry? You were working during the time of globalization and consolidation. Do you think businesses within the cosmetic industry are being socially responsible today? And I recognize that this is a difficult, perhaps possibly unfair question and a conversation that could take hours. But I guess I'm asking, do you think senior level executives are stepping up to tackle the myriad of social issues we are facing in the United States and globally? I'll tell you the truth, Elizabeth. I don't have a clue. I'm really so far divorced from that world now. Uh, I really don't even have a friend, a single person uh, left in the industry. And I knew everyone from uh, Leonard Lauder to Charles Revson. I mean, I knew all the giants of the industry, but today I'm really totally divorced from it. I have no contact whatsoever. So I wouldn't have a clue whether these people are stepping up or not. I think that I'm sure that the women's manufacturers would be stepping up on women's issues. I think that they would they would most definitely do. I know that Estee Lauder always did. And there I think if you're dealing with women's products solely, versus men, I'm sure they must be doing something. I would hope they're doing something, but I really have no knowledge if they are or not really stepping up. For those people who don't know Rikers Island, it's a 400-acre island in the East River between Queens and the Bronx. That's probably one of the largest correctional facilities in the world. Can you tell us, Mark, what it was like when you first entered Rikers, that first day when you were patted down and and locked in and felt the bars behind you? Truthfully, I never had a moment's concern while I was on Rikers. I mean, I was always escorted by correction officers. Uh, I was working out of the school there called the Horizon Academy. There's a district in New York City education called District 79. It's the alternative school districts. And the Horizon Academy was the school on Rikers Island. I have to remember, I asked for this. When I went to principal for the day, I said, I want the toughest school in New York. Don't send me to a fancy place like where my kids went. And they're the ones who sent me to Rikers Island, which then conjured up an old thought in my mind, which happens to be in the book, was I'm actually from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, small coal mining town near Pittsburgh. First time I saw New York, uh, I was in the Navy. I had gone to Penn State for two years and not done particularly well. So I went in the Navy and my ship pulled into New York. I called my father in Johnstown, PA. I said, get me a job in this town. He got me a job pushing racks around the garment district. But the day before I was leaving Johnstown, after I'd gotten out of the Navy, I went out and got drunk, got arrested and got locked up. So my father, I still remember that cell door closing behind me and my father having to come down and bail me out in the morning. I think he was very happy that I left town at that, at that point in time. So I had been in a facility before, not anything like Rikers. The Rikers is dramatically reduced in size. 
in its heyday, there were almost 20,000 men there. And we should differentiate the people who were there. When you get arrested and go to Rikers Island, you are referred to as a detainee. You're not a prisoner. You're not in car. You're being detained. And while you're, what you're there, you're detained while your case is adjudicated. So you could be there for a month or you could be there for three years until your case is finally adjudicated. You cannot do felony time on Rikers. You can only do misdemeanor time. So if you are sentenced to a year or less, you can do that time on Rikers Island. Once you get sentenced to a felony, you get sent, the vernacular for it is being called up top. And what up top is, are the myriad of prisons around New York State. So that's the difference. But right now, I don't think there's any more than maybe three or 4,000 uh, people on Rikers Island, either as detainees or as uh, doing misdemeanor time. So it's dramatically reduced in size. But they haven't necessarily reduced their cost, which means their cost per person is extremely high. But working at Rikers, I saw very, very little violence. Now remember, this is 15 years ago. Everything was under much better control than it is today. Today bears no resemblance to the way it used to be. I mean, drugs are available uh, anywhere. Uh, there are weapons. Uh, it's just a disaster, and the reason for it has to do with the basic management of the jail and the union, the correction officers' union. To say it's a little bit out of control is, is putting it mildly. There's no camaraderie. There used to be a camaraderie among them. I got along with all of them. I never had a problem whatsoever. But then again, I follow the rules. And I knew so that when I walked into that classroom and met these young men, I said to myself, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go any one of us. I mean, I could have easily have gotten locked up in Rikers Island for what I did, hitting a cop car and being drunk. And that wasn't the best move in the world. But that first session was very interesting because I had to get their attention and keep their attention. So my first subject was Tupac Shakur and my next subject was Kobe Bryant. So we talked basketball and rap for about an hour. And then I asked them what they talked to them about, what they wanted to do the rest of their lives. So what kind of work do they want to do? And nobody had a clue. I got the feeling most of them were going back to the neighborhood and end up back on the corner selling drugs and doing whatever they were doing. So I did an analogy for them between a corporation and a drug cartel. And what I was trying to show them is that jobs existed in the corporation the same as they did in a, uh, in a drug gang. I asked them if they could sell, and they said, oh, yeah, we're, we, we, can, we know how to sell. I said, well, that's called a sales department, and they, whether you're selling cars or selling drugs, you're still selling something. I said, who takes care of the money? Oh, there's one guy who takes care of the money. I said, that's called finance. I said, okay. Who selects the guys in the gang? Oh, there's one guy who's older, and he said, that's called personnel. And what I did over two hours is everybody got placed in a job, a real job. When I got finished, the correction officers came up to me, and they said, we've never seen these guys listen to anybody for some reason. Whatever you're telling them, they're listening. And so it was a very quiet two hours on Rikers. I went back to work. <laughs> <laughs> 
One year later, I went back and I went to principals today. I said, where am I going this year? They said, oh, you're going back to Rikers Island. I, they loved you on Rikers. I said, well, hell, somebody loves me. I'm going back. So back I went. And this was all because of a woman named Gloria Ortiz, who was the principal. John knows her very well. I've dedicated the book, actually, to Arlene, my wife, and to Gloria, because Arlene was the one that first suggested that I even become a principal for the day. And Gloria was the one who invited me back. This time I asked her, what would you think if I started coming back more often? And she said, that would be fantastic. So I started coming back, bringing books and the like. And then I found out that somebody was getting out. John, I don't know if you were first or not. John, can you tell us what it was like on the inside? Describe Rikers Island. Absolutely. Um... Rikers Island was a tough place. I'm not going to lie. First and foremost, I was incarcerated for a criminal substance with the intent to sale to an undercover police officer. I was taken into custody and I was detained on Rikers Island for uh, a matter of a few months while getting some traction with an offer. It wasn't going anywhere. Times were just really hard, really dark, no uh, connection to the outside world, totally disconnected, scary. And at the time, they were allowing the inmates to go to a school. The only outlet was Horizon Academy. And I, I was so looking forward to going there every day. I mean, while I was in the outside, I didn't want to go to school, to be honest with you. But when I went to Rikers and I saw that there was a, an opportunity to obtain my GED and do something positive during these difficult times, I took full advantage of that opportunity. And that's where I then met Mr. G, Mark Goldsmith. Um, one day, I just see him coming in. But I, I guess that was just his routine at that point. I think he was already doing it on a weekly basis. And when I met him, and he walked in the room. I'm like, who's, who's this guy? Like, wh what is this all about? You know, and it sounded weird. And he said, well, this is getting out and staying out. He gave us a lot of information and a lot of positivity and encouragement uh, of what was waiting for us on the outside. He made it clear. He said, hey, one of the requirements is a resume and what you want to do when you get out of here. And we had to kind of do an essay. I don't know if Mark remembers, but that's what we were doing at the time. I was so excited and looking forward to working with Mark on a blueprint of what to expect, because during that time, it was very difficult. And uh, not having the resources financially to obtain a good attorney, it was very hard for, for myself and my family to help me. And Mark actually not only helped in, in the Horizon Academy aspect, but he also communicated with my attorney and the DAs. And uh, he's like a voice, a voice that I didn't have um, and fought for us from the outside in because it's such an open bridge when you go into Rikers, but the bridge gets very narrow. And when you don't have somebody to help you navigate your way, you could be lost in that system. Like Mark said, you'll end up up top if you don't have no other assistance whatsoever. 
So, Mark, this is where Starbucks comes in, doesn't it, when you, you started meeting? John was being defended by the Legal Aid Society assigned uh, lawyers to them. And so that, that was his defense. And some of them were pretty good at what they did. Other ones were not so good. The one thing about getting out and staying out was it, it wasn't a free ride. The guys had to do something every step of the way. So as John said, he had to create a resume and make an appointment you know, to see me in the school. And then I, I would not talk to anybody unless there was a resume and some ideas. And so that I then got involved and I would talk to their counsel about them and they would we'd try and find a, a common ground of some type. But I didn't, I didn't have any money to open up an office or anything, so I figured, what the hell, I well, just go to Starbucks. So I set myself up at Starbucks at 39th and Madison. I drank more cafe lattes that year than you could possibly <laughs> imagine. Uh, and that was my temporary office before our first office in East Harlem. Describe forming this organization called Getting Out and Staying Out, GOSO. It wasn't much of an organization. It was me, myself, and I. I was it. I, opened, I came in the morning, I opened up the gate, uh, I sat there by myself and told guys to come see me. I hired an administrator, Roberto Moran. I don't know, do you remember Roberto? Uh, I do, I do. It was just Roberto and I. In fact, Roberto used to say, you know, he was amazed that we went from seeing nobody to all of a sudden guys started coming in. And then we had to have a calendar. One of the things that happened was that because of my wife, Dr. Arlene Goldsmith, who runs a, an agency called New Alternatives for Children. They deal with physically challenged children who have been living in hospitals beyond medical necessity. She gets them back to, with their parents or foster care and the like. One thing that Arlene told me is I must hire social workers only with a master's degree. If you didn't have a master's degree, you couldn't work at Joso because the social workers had to deal with, with the trauma the guys had been through, and they had to have a much deeper understanding of the world that they were operating in. So every single social worker from the day we started, well over 15 years ago, has a master's degree. And slowly but surely, based on the number of clients we had, I mean, I really had to do this all with whatever money I could scrape up until I figured out the whole fundraising aspect of the not-for-profit. So it was really a one-man show and then a two-man show for probably six months, six to nine months. And now it's quite an organization, isn't it? It's, it's a real organization. Uh, we had three offices on 216th Street. We had the basic office. And then I wanted to have a GED facility on the outside. And the Department of Education was very cooperative. District 79 because they had met me on Rikers Island and they knew that I was serious. So they granted me a separate program of my own at getting out and staying out. So I had opened up another office on 116 and now it's all incorporated in one office up on 124th Street uh, and 3rd Avenue. It has grown. One of the things I should mention though is that we only dealt with young men. I made one trip, John, to Rosie's, and they had me for breakfast. Rosie's was the women's facility. They were meaner and tougher and smarter, and they, the women were something else, and I decided I just could not take that on. I also thought it would be a distraction for the guys to have women in the program. 
And just to piggy off of Mark, it's for young adults. And I know, I believe at that time, the ages were 17 to 24. I was actually afraid because the years were going by so quick. I was afraid that I, w- I wasn't going to be a part of getting out and staying out. And for some reason, I thought there was something, I guess, the trauma from everything that I went through as a child. I felt, I thought Mark was going to kick me out one day, you know, like, hey, John, I can't talk to you anymore. You're 24. You got to go. But no, here, here I am, 36 years old, and I'm still till this day talking with Mark. And it's just amazing what getting out and staying out has done for me and how Mark has built this amazing opportunity for us unfortunate young adults that are in the system, all this negativity that we're around. It's just amazing. I think I met Mark in 2005 in the early days, the Starbucks days, early, early days. So it's just amazing. I like to say, Elizabeth, these guys have been dealt a bad deck of cards, as they say. Now, there's also a correspondence program that takes place up top. That If the guys got sentenced to time up top, we started a correspondence program. And I am still writing to a couple of guys up top We've been pen pals for over 15 years, just keeping contact with them and hearing about their lives. That's still part of the program, the correspondence program. Chelsea Kramer, she still runs it, and it runs very efficiently. John, can you tell us what you're doing today? You have quite a successful career. I'm an operations and safety manager for a trucking company in the Northeast region of Pennsylvania. I've been with this company over three years, and I started off my career in dispatch in New York, in the Bronx. When I first obtained my CDL Class B license, I started off scrubbing floors because I just needed the extra money for the office. Thankfully, I was able to start my career in the transportation industry and was able to successfully buy a home for me and my wife at the time and my a son as well was born and we moved and I bought my first house at the age of 23, which was a huge accomplishment. Fast forward now, I'm in a really good company, decent salary, upwards of six figures. I don't have a master's or a bachelor's degree. It's just been pure hard work and um, being a, a responsible young man and showing my worth. And with the experience that I have, which is 15 to the 18 years, I've been able to land this position I'm with a good company. I live in Pennsylvania. It's a nice area. I don't have to deal with the noise of New York and the troubles of traffic and all that nonsense. So I moved in 2007 from the Bronx, and I've never looked back. And I've just been here enjoying the beautiful air and the tranquility, the peacefulness, the trees, and all that good stuff, no more Rikers. And I'm definitely fortunate to have the things that I have and have been able to achieve the things that I've achieved. I just bought my first investment property as well. I've come a a long, long way. You sure have. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mark has helped me along the way with negotiating resumes. I mean, I remember Mark, I I would come to him and say, hey, Mark, I don't have money for a a suit or I don't have money for a shirt and a tie. And he would say, hey, come downstairs. At that time, Mark had a 
a room downstairs filled with shirts and ties. And I would go downstairs. I felt like a little kid on Christmas getting a gift. And he's like, here's this shirt. Here's that shirt. And these were all name brand shirts and nice ties. I'm like, oh, Mark, man, you're the best. Like, thank you so much. Like, that's all I really needed. Those type of little things that Mark did during that time. Because if if I didn't have the money, where was I going to resort to? I was going to go on the street and try to do and commit an act that I didn't have to commit. So by me going to see Mark and getting a Metro card to go to that interview that I needed to go to, and not only the the clothes and the shirt and the tie and the Metro card, but Mark would coach me on on interviews and salary negotiations. And I I remember talking to Mark like, hey, I got a job that's going to offer me 35 and here I am negotiating $120,000 salary. It's amazing, you know, what Mark has done, not only for me, but for the community. He's given back and it's helped me tremendously. And I, I'm forever going to be thankful. He's like the, the mentor, the father, the friend that I've never had. It has allowed me the opportunity to do the right thing for not only myself, but also for my family. Mark, with your business acumen and skills, it just seems like we need someone like you to go in and take over Rikers Island been reading about Mayor de Blasio when he was mayor, saying he was closed records. He, he had a department correction ad named Vincent Chiraldi, and Chiraldi should have been made the head of Rikers Island in correction years ago. And he was not given the job, so he went to Columbia University, where he's a professor. You need a forward-thinking person as the head of corrections. That's what you need. You can't go back to the old lock them up and throw away the key stuff. And I'm not sure uh, whether Mayor Adams is the right person to find the right person to do it. My own opinion is that as New Yorkers, there isn't anything that we can't do if we put our mind to it. If we decide that we want to make that the best jail in New York, we can do that. There's something called a receivership. And the idea is that the island gets put in a receivership under the federal government. That's the one way to get it away from the union, to start. In other words, not that you're not going to have union people, but we've got to start all over and all the seniority and all the vacation time and all the other stuff that's causing all these problems. They did that in education. When the Department of Education came into Rikers Island, they asked every single teacher to resign and then reapply for the job. That's what has to be done on Rikers. Everybody should be forced to resign and reapply. In that way, you'd be starting with a clean state. The problem with it now is it's so screwed up that I think the answer is this receivership run by the feds, eventually to be run by the city. But that's the way to start all over again. And that would be my suggestion. So has your book made a difference, Mark? Are you speaking? Are people reading it? Uh, We're really just launching a campaign right now to get it out there. I've had a couple of book parties, and we're starting to get some press on it. Uh, The the book is actually two parts. It's part memoir. It's really partly the story of my life. And then the part how to start a not-for-profit. And in a, it's a very short primer. If somebody's interested in the cause and they want to start a not-for-profit, 
they can learn how to do it through the book. It tells you everything about fundraising, personnel, contracts with the city and the state, whether it's working in criminal justice reform or working with young children or working any area that somebody wants to get involved in that they feel it's very important to have a passion for this work. If you don't have passion for this work, it's never going to happen because it's not easy. And there are a lot of things that happen along the way that make it difficult. But you just can't, you just can't give up. You just keep moving forward. That's it. I was blessed by having Arlene as the uh, mentor in the world of not-for-profit since she built her not-for-profit. So that didn't hurt at all. John, do you have anything to say about what you can do, those of you who've been through Rikers? or been through incarceration, what can you do now to help make a difference? I, I um, personally think that we should always stay in touch with our younger generation and give back. I've been involved with many different events and activities to help the younger generation and to let them know that, you know, it gets better. It gets better. I'm a proven subject of that matter. It's hard. Like Mark said, from the corporate side of things, I could imagine. But for us, we look at it as a great opportunity to take advantage. When you have somebody like Mark, you, I couldn't even imagine. But well, to me, Mark, I thought it was a joke. I didn't believe that there was somebody there on the other side that was going to try to help me and care about me and the best in the best interest of myself. You know, the, I, I really didn't. It took some time to build that trust. Once I got out and I saw what Mark was doing, that's what gave me the encouragement to believe in myself and that there's a better way. But I'm always giving back, trying to talk to uh, the younger generation. It's different. We're in a different world. We're in different times now. But I am a proven testament that the program worked. It worked if you work, if you work yourself too, because they could only do but so much. You have to want it. You know, just like Mark said, this is not an easy business. Um, you have to have the passion. And if you don't have the passion, it's the same thing. We could we could offer as much advice as we can, but if the person is not ready to make that change, then they're gonna end up up top. And I think where Mark is coming in and giving that knowledge and giving that information is at a good starting point because a lot of people end up in Rikers like myself. The minute I went into Rikers, I, I knew that that wasn't for me. I, I knew it for a fact. And then there's some people who just continue on, you know, unfortunately, because they're just, that's just the, the cycle that they're in and they haven't hit that wall. Instead of them sending me up top because they wanted to offer me two years. Mark fought for me and they gave me a drug rehabilitation program. And that was the best option available. And that was amazing because I was addicted to drugs at that time as a young adult. And I really needed help. I didn't need to go up, up top to the upstate prisons and, and go through that cycle. That program really assisted me when I got out as well in conjunction with getting out and staying. Mark, I think you launched your book at our beloved favorite bookstore, the Corner Bookstore. 
people can find it there. They can find it online. Do you have any other programs or anything else that you're planning? Well, we're doing something else. John, you'd be interested in this. We have a group in Harlem called CV, Cure Violence. It's called Save East Harlem. We've hired a group of young men and women, former drug dealers and gang members. And what they do is they go out into the community, housing area by housing area, because there's a line of demarcation with a housing unit. If you live in Johnson Houses, you don't go across a certain street to another housing area because you could get hit. So that what the city has done is starting these cure violence units. And I immediately signed up for one for East Harlem. And that's another whole operation that we have as part of getting out and staying out. And the other thing we're doing is we're starting to have guys like John come back and talk to the new guys who just get out and talk to them and kind of mentor them and coach them a little bit since they've been there and done that. It's important that we have that communal thing going on. It's an ongoing process, but the tradition uh, that we started only because what John said is that if a young man was not going to buy into this thing, it wasn't going to work. I was not going to get this thing done for any of them. They had to do it themselves. And they had what we had to do is frame it, position it and give the opportunity, then it was up to them to take advantage of it. So it's, it's really a, uh, it's a communal thing. We're all in this thing together. It's not us versus them or anything. It's you become part of the, it's the Goso family is really what it is. We continue to have community events where we invite people and just get people to understand that these young men, need, they need opportunity. That's what they need. Then it's up to them to make sure that they do the right thing. I think people, Elizabeth, really do want to help. You have to ask them, and you have to frame it for them. And then once they have the opportunity to see how these young men respond, keep coming back. Last thing I'll say is, no matter how much you put into it and the rest of it, what you get back is so much more than you can possibly imagine. Being here, seeing John, seeing the Goso guys, just makes me feel very good, you know? It makes me feel very good. That everybody keep in mind, it's all about them. It's not about us. Not about you, who's taking the time to do a podcast. Not about me, who worked tirelessly over the years. Not about the social workers. It's got to be all about the guides. That's why all this is being done. They're the ones in need. And I think in return, what you get back from it is just phenomenal. Wouldn't change a thing. And Elizabeth, if you don't mind, I would like to say one more thing. In the book, I have a note. And at the end of that note that I wrote to MG, it says, we need more people like Mark. Mark and John, I want to say thank you to both of you. This has been a very interesting conversation. I hope that a lot of people listen to this and think about how they can get involved and what they can do. And I hope, Mark, that a lot of people read your book. 
Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. <laughs>